Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as IA Reporter, is our sponsor for Season 5. IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, notable policy developments. Last year, IA Reporter launched a new content feature, a searchable database on more than 1,400 ISDS cases, including party, arbitrator, and counsel information. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies use IA Reporter for current awareness, due diligence, and conflict checking, visit iareporter.com. Hello, and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the procrastination station, the translation station, the interpretation station, the whatever station, the arbitration station. My name is well Joel Dahlquist. And I'm Sadia Betty. And I'm Brian Kotick. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% book club, finally! Yay! You guys have been reading and buying and everything, now you get to really uh, spread those wings. (laughs) Yes, two of us. So, so I, am, I am back now and I, I just, I don't want to let you speak, Sadia. I'm sorry. I feel like I, I was let out. No, please like, do. Neglected uh, the second time, <laughs> the first time around. I want to speak exclusively now. No, honestly, I, I told you this offline, both of you guys. It was really nice listening to the last episode and it was so much better when I wasn't there. I'm not sure if it's because it's the dynamic of two people is better than the dynamic of three or if it was just the absence of my personality that made it such a punchy episode. Don't say that. You're just saying that so people send us comments and be like, no, Joe, we Keep missed Joel, you so much. No, Joel. please don't go. Free Joel. <laughs> <laughs> I am being sincere, but it's good to know that if one of us has to move and attend hearings at the same time, that the other two can carry it. Or if you have some other... It does work. Absent. It does work. There's no like freeloader effect when there's two. You know, when, when there's three, you can rely on someone else jumping in. But when it's just the two of you, you got to be on the game. Indeed. I think that's the reason as well. You, you have to actually interact. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And we speak less on top of each other, which is which is the fun thing of the podcast, though. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So let's have some updates, you guys. What? Let, tell me where you are and what you've been doing recently. I am so let's still, start with you. Yeah, I'm in London and uh, I just moved uh, flats, which is the word you use here now that you're a British <laughs> exactly. speaker. It's not called an apartment. It's called a flat in the UK. Um, and I am also in, in an exit hearing that's gone on for for quite some time online clearly so i am usually now in my bedroom listening to uh, to uh, mostly to witness examinations because that's obviously most most of the hearing so that's mm. essentially my life and because uh, some of the participants are east of me and some of them are west of me i have a pretty good time frame compared to many of the other mm. participants in this hearing so i i sit between or it's the hearing is between 2 and 8 in the afternoon, evening, my time, which is oh, because that leaves me some time to to work and do other things in the mornings, and then 
uh, sit until not too late at night. There are some other people who are like four hours ahead of me who have to sit until midnight for two weeks. Yeah. So how does it work for the breaks? Because uh, surely you don't, the meals don't fall at the same time for everyone. No, I am thankfully not on camera a lot. So I manage to, to ah. eat a little bit. But I think we've had, generally we have like two or three shorter breaks, 15, 20 minutes. So not enough for a proper meal, but enough mm-hmm. for like a snack every now and then. That's so difficult. I couldn't imagine conducting a cross-examination until midnight. Yeah. You're just not as sharp. Nope. I have a <laughs> challenge. I'm very happy that I'm a secretary here and not uh, either an advocate or, for that matter, a witness, because that yeah. is challenging. I had a conference call between a partner in New York, uh, in Hong Kong, and counsel in California, and then us in London. And it was, you know, <laughs> the people in California, these poor people had just woken up, like disheveled yeah. hair thrown on their jacket. <laughs> and the people in Hong Kong were just like worn out. It was like 2 p.m. in London. <laughs> yeah, like, we kind of scored. Hello. We won the lottery everyone <laughs> of the like online communication in the age of COVID. Those of us who are sort of in the middle, it's never really yeah. convenient for us compared to people who are like in Vancouver or Sydney or Hong Kong who are end up on yeah. the, the bad side of things well that's a problem also for like big conferences and webinars because now they're like oh we can invite everyone everyone can mm. attend but not really actually because if you're recording live then it's cool to have a panel with different regional representation but you can't really invite everyone because people in sydney are not in the same time frame as people in new york <laughs> So right, you exactly. can't possibly have both of them at the same on the same panel. So that's a bit of a of a shame, really. What you can mm. do, however, is yeah, yeah. have sort of a, a written panel. This is a very that's right tortured bridge. Because I I wanted to ask you, Sadia, about your recent appointment. Maybe you are now the president <laughs> of Ojimid or the oh my the gosh, the president. <laughs> We're gonna get angry emails coming the in. Star. Like what is? <laughs> not at all you, i'm just a mirror moderator like uh plenty of of uh, other people and yes it's exciting i i used to follow how OJ many moderators are there oh my gosh you're putting them on the stop one two are we uh, four five i think we're five or okay something. so I have maybe a bit more yeah exactly but it's funny because that's the first listserv that i subscribed to when i was uh, uh starting uh, as a junior associate the young ojimit thread i remember same and, actually uh, I was a summer associate yeah. and someone told me about it and I yeah. managed to sneak I always in. thought it was really cool. And then I upgraded to Ojimit and now I'm on both uh, and uh, moderating. So yeah, if for people who haven't signed up, please do. Young Ojimit is free. How do you sign up? Well, Young Ojimit, you just go on the website on the Ojimit. You just type Ojimit and uh, Young Ojimit, you have to fill in a form and explain why you want to be a member, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for Ojimit, I think you need to be a subscriber to Transnational Dispute Management. Um, and that's how you uh, your firm actually signs up and you, you get you get to be part of this um, of this threat. But it's really interesting topics are circulated and people post things about conferences, about books being released, about job offers. It's really everything. Oh, um, wow. So yeah, so, yeah that's, a, that's a, new, a new thing that I've added. Another feather <laughs> in my <your> schedule. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. What about you guys? What have you been up to? Uh, you know, just starting a new firm and uh trying to <laughs> oh my gosh yes. business yeah. etc um, the usual just getting 
SRA authorization and getting insurance in place and all that stuff and trying to find business at the same time. And in finding business, you really have to, you know, as, as a smaller firm, you're not going to, you know, knock on Shell or Chevron's door and get the new case. So you have to find new areas and kind of like be on the crest of some new industries in order to find business. And um, space was like, you know, one of those industries where you can maybe like try and get into a, you know, underdeveloped um, legal sphere there. But um, I know, especially coming from California, that cannabis has been quite the market. Um, and I don't know how it intersects with arbitration, but there is a summit called Canna Law um, and it's in May and they're going to have a full um, conference on the issues facing cannabis. And I think in the UK, they're legalizing it quite soon. And I think if you're in the, the wave of these, uh, the cannabis or canna law in the UK, you could really um, take over quite a big market share for, for the type of work being done because there's going to be an explosion of companies and, um, and corporate formations and dissolutions arising from that. I mean, they have partners from big firms. So it's not just like, you know, Nixon Peabody and Foley Hoag and McGuire Woods. So there's... So what is it? It's like disputes related to cannabis? What is it? Yeah, well, I mean, so they have... uh, I'm looking at the um, agenda now. It's basically... I think a lot of it is going to be the regulations around around it. Um, So cannabis tourism and hospitality, uh, a review of client engagement, intake and risk best practices utilizing firm resources to provide holistic client services in collaboration with cannabis law, the evolving relationship between IP law and and cannabis supply chain. It is a a legit industry, like literally a legitimate industry Mm. that is is growing (laughs) growing exponentially. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, why not learn something about a new industry? Yeah, we know. I, I mean, this is the thing in arbitration, you know, you learn, you become an expert in the weirdest subject matter because you have a case on it, like a sprinkler yeah. system or, you know, mm-hmm. a space launch yes. vehicle. Yes, exactly. So anyway, you got to get in, get into these types of new things. It's fun. But today we're doing book club. And it's the third time we've read something, and it's the second time we read something by Jan Paulsen. JP, all the way. <laughs> what was the book? It's called The Unruly Notion of Abuse of Rights, and it's not really arbitration-specific. It's more like arbitration-tangential, I'd say. It's about mm-hmm. the notion of abuse of rights that we've all heard of in different iterations, and he's written... A pretty short and snappy book with Cambridge University Press that came out uh, mid-2020, late 2020, like maybe six months ago, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm. Abuse of rights to me is like a, it's one of those like exclamation points, cries that people give like due process violations. Do you guys get into that type of discussion? Yeah, that is essentially his main thesis in the book. Like mm. this is this is a very general thing that people just throw in the mix, but it doesn't really mean anything. And you should use other legal notions instead that are yeah. more specific and better tailored to what you're after. Very interesting. I'm not going to speak too much about it because I have an active case where this has been... <laughs> This uh, this uh, this has been raised, so right. so it's still ongoing. But yes, definitely, uh, abusive rights, abusive process. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, it's true that it's not focused on arbitration, but he does refer to uh, exit cases. His actually <laughs> also, where he decided on one, and uh, it's interesting to see his 
his position on this now uh, mm. a few years later. So yeah, so that's exciting. First book club with the the author himself or herself actually present in the book club discussion, which obviously right. adds a layer to <laughs> to the discussion. And I don't know if we should introduce Jan Paulson. We probably should, not that he needs any introduction. He has been a leader of this field since it was invented, essentially, and uh, for a long time headed the... He invented the field. (laughs) Isn't it dealing in virtue that they divide, like, the era of arbitration between before Paulson and after Paulson? Or am I Mm -hmm. making this up? No, that sounds familiar, especially, I think, investment treaty arbitration. You you can, and in fact, some have made the case that he sort of, well, he was probably a lot of people involved, obviously, but that his his writings and his advocacy in the late 80s and early 90s were really instrumental in developing investment arbitration. After Freshfields, he, he started Three Crowns, uh, and he's been a, a professor on and off for a long time, in particular at University of Miami. Uh, but now, I think as of this year, just a few months ago, he retired from Three Crowns and he is now going to be sort of a senior statesman figure thinking big thoughts. And he actually says during the interview that his next project is going to be a novel. Oh, like a fiction novel? Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, stay tuned to that. I'm yes. interested to hear what he says. Indeed. And after uh, the Jan Paulson interview, we take things uh, down a few notches and do a segment that I will be sort of leading on challenging arbitrators which it just struck me that we have never talked about on this podcast although it should be like one of the first lectures on any arbitration course Absolutely. but we did like issue conflicts right what, yeah we talked we about that? like double more, hatching yeah exactly we, we talked about like various niche sub issues relating to arbitrators independence and impartiality i think we did that on the assumption that we had already done the 101 thing about like what are the standards and how do you challenge an arbitrator Mm. but i I looked through and we haven't actually done that so i will do that with able research assistance from dmitry mednikov of course and then we have happy Mm -hmm. fun time as always talking about paralegals and how supportive they are and kind of how we use them in arbitration and in, in our arbitration teams and um, you know, pros and cons, I guess. Yeah. So there we go. Because they're people too, you know. They are people. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's our agenda and let's get this started. Yeah, let's jump right into the interview with Jan Paulson about unruly notion of abuse of rights. Swedish citizen, but not a Swedish yes. lawyer. <laughs> that's right. And French citizen too? Are you French citizen as well? Yes, and that's where I, that's where I had a bar qualification for the longest time. I'm avocat honoré à la Cour de Paris. But maybe we can start with the Swiss, because that's the first the first uh, author that you mention in your book, Jean Daniel Roulet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe we can start with that. That was written 63 years ago. Le caractère artificiel de la théorie de l'abus de droit. So why did you wait so long after his uh, his thesis to 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 write well, about this? It's um, it's not a well known book, uh, and I came across it by by accident. Um, since I sat in a case in the in the late nineteen nineties where I used abuse of right as you know, with with a co arbitrator two out of three. There was a dissent on the point uh, using. Uh, the principle of abuse of right, and I th- 
and, and since there was a dissent, I kept thinking about it. What is this thing really? But when you have to decide a case, you have to decide it. And so you do it. And then I thought afterwards uh, that um, I wasn't quite sure where, where this would end if people started using this thing. So what does it really mean? Uh, I had been convinced that um, Ben Cheng and his general principles, which is the locus classicus, uh, had endorsed abuse of right as a general principle. And so this is a lesson to young lawyers, obviously, is just, yeah, check. Don't, you know, don't, if you think you remember something, look at it. And the chapter of good faith says that good faith is a general principle of law. And then within, uh, within brackets, uh, and the theory of uh, abuse of right. So he was just saying, he's not, you know, this book does not say that this is a general principle. Um, and, and of course, one question to anybody who has to adjudicate a case is, can you decide any case by, by applying a principle? Anyway, um, a, a principle, um, we'll all agree that it's, it's a good principle not to be abusive. So can you, can you then decide everything? Like if a claim is abusive, it should be denied. If non-performance of a contract is abusive, then the claim should be upheld. So, you know, we, we're, we're really in good shape. Uh, we can then, how about, well, let's, let's talk about proportionality. If we, if we just have to remember the word proportionality, I guess we can decide any question of quantum just by saying, well, this seems like an awful lot. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not proportional and I'm the arbitrator and, and my decisions are not on the merits appealable and that's all I have to do. And how about legitimate expectations? So th these things are somewhat uh, bothersome. And, and at one point, many years ago, I came across Rouleau's uh, book, which exists only in French. And, and as I said, uh, I haven't seen it anywhere else except wherever I stumbled upon it um, and, and, and purchased it. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Um, and you can you very quickly discover that the author concludes that this cannot possibly be um, a, a general principle in the international sphere, and it's not even very reliable as a matter of national law. So I thought, well, this is odd. So this is a complete rejection of Bing Chang. Actually, it isn't, because Bing Chang doesn't say that it's a general principle. Uh, and, and then um, I hadn't noticed it, because I started reading the book and, and skipped the, the beginning. So you, sh you shouldn't do that. The beginning is a preference by Bing Chang. So I said, well, Bin Sheng probably didn't read French and, and, and just because the preface is in English, oddly enough. So he probably didn't realize that this thrashes his theory that abuse of right is a general principle of law. So I read it finally, and it's not very long. And in the very end, Bin Sheng, who never said that abuse of right was a general principle of law, declares himself to be militantly agnostic as to whether it is or it isn't, and uh, calls uh, Roulet's book absolutely brilliant. So I became a bit interested in these, you know, in how, how all this could be explained. And it turns out that Roulet had been Bin Sheng's study, a student in London. And uh, this uh, book came out of the work that he did under Bin Sheng. So he, and, and he, I, I, I'm sure, revered Bin Sheng and was not trying to trash anything, uh, just take it a bit further and actually come to a conclusion uh, and not, not remain agnostic as Bin Sheng was. So I, I found all of that very interesting because things that you assume. In the case where I had used abuse of right, um, we had to decide, so you can't sit and think about it forever. 
uh, and the place of arbitration was Jakarta and, and the arbitrators were delivering in Singapore. You have to go home at some point and you have to decide. Um, and uh, co-arbitrator with whom I agreed uh, thought that this, this, this would be a good uh, resolution. Uh, we could have looked at the contract, which said that the arbitrators are not bound to apply the law strictly, but could use equitable consideration. So we could have just done that. And then this case would not be at all remarkable in, in, in this sense. But that's what he preferred. And, and, and he was a, a charming uh, retired judge from the Indonesian Supreme Court. And so we, we did it. And I thought, well, Bin Shanks has a general principle, so what's wrong? <laughs> and um, I, I've, I have no regrets for the decision. As I said, it could have been decided that way. And it probably should have been decided, in my opinion, should have been decided that way. But we could have used that contractual clause and it, it, it would have been fine. Would it be fair to say then that it's the the genesis of the book is sort of a mea culpa for your reliance uh, on on Bin Cheng and the statement that abuse of right is a general principle and in, in the himpurna? No, I, I'm I'm sure I wouldn't. I don't want anybody else to follow that sort of sloppy path to a decision and just hope that by luck uh, it's a defensible decision anyway. Uh, I, so, not a mea culpa in. In, in that sense, but uh, I guess it testifies to my lack of certainty as to the correctness of the reasoning that, that for years I, I was very interested in this. And then I came across Ruli's book and, and started plunging into the subject uh, uh, more um, uh, uh, seriously. Uh, now, Ruli, uh, for your young listeners, uh, his, his book, I think, is quite brilliant. It's 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 not very long, but it's you know the the it, it's quite deep in his reflection on, on on comparative law. I mean, he just gets to the point very quickly and, and poses some some deep questions. So th this is somebody I think who could have gone very far, and and nobody's ever heard of him in academic writing, and he hasn't written anything since. And the reason for that, I mean, he was a young man then, but that was 1955, wasn't 55, 56. Um, he decided to abandon. Uh, uh, academia. Oh, one thing was that his book is written in French, so already there's that, that sort of limits the audience. Um, but he decided not to pursue an academic career. I'm, I'm convinced that he could have done very well. Uh, mm -hmm. He went to work at the World Bank um, and had a brilliant career and ended up being a, a chief resident for the World Bank in India, which is a major uh, station for the World Bank. And uh, I, he's, I, I know he's retired. I, I don't know what's happened to him since. So the world lost, in my opinion, quite quite an impressive uh, scholar, but I maybe he enjoyed himself more doing what he ended up doing and he had a successful career anyway. If, if I may, I, um, as a French here, I'm going to put my French cap on for a second. Um, when I started my legal studies, I, of course, uh, was taught the Article 544 of the droit de la propriété and uh, what you also refer as uh, the, the the citation by Marcel Plagnol, not Marcel Pagnol, <laughs> Marcel Plagnol, um, on uh, the <laughs> abuse, uh, where abuse, uh, you know, the, what we call the théorie de l'abus de droit in France. And so I was interested, could you, could you tell us a little bit more about this, about what your view is as to the abus de droit, how that fits in with your, uh, with your thesis here? Well, a uh, uh, droit is not even uh, a principle of French law, as far as I can tell, because it was debated so um, strenuously at the turn of the last century. So 1895, 1905, that period, there, there was a big, big debate um, uh, in, among French uh, academics 
Planiol resisted it, and Planiol, after all, is Planiol. He is the great expositor of the Code Civil, 1,500-page long tome that came out every two or three years. I don't know how he was able to keep it up, but he did. Uh, and he, he absolutely uh, rejected it with his famous uh, uh, sentence uh, to the effect that uh, 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 a right ends where abuse starts. So if there is abuse, there is no right. And that's how we should understand the right. So this is nonsense to determine whether somebody has the right to do something or not. Unless you've done that, there's no, no room for abuse. Uh, Josephon, his, his great opponent, was the one who said that this is absolutely uh, important for various reasons. That gets quite theoretical and you can read about it in, 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 in the book. Uh, but what is interesting is that Josephine pushed for a proposal to rewrite the French, well, to amend the French Civil Code to introduce the concept of abus de droit in the, mm -hmm. in the Civil Code, and that was rejected. Um, Josephine kept writing about this uh, through the years, um, and it came up again after World War II, a new proposal uh, in the French Parliament to introduce into the Code Civil abus de droit, and it failed once more. So even though people people who talk about abuse to right, abuse of right, uh, speaking in English, sometimes switch to French because, of course, that's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, was I was shocked to read that, I would say. The gut feeling was like, what? I always assumed it was, yes. Well, there are things that, like, they need justice. You mm -hmm. know, cab drivers have opinions about the need justice. And what they mean is that this is really wrong, right? Because <laughs> it's, mais c'est un de need justice. Well, they don't mean it in a technical sense at all. They don't mean it the way a lawyer means it. They mean this is atrocious. This is an outrage. This is absolutely wrong. Same with abus de droit. It's sort of, the, the, it's sort of um, it's, uh, more or less qualified feelings about things. While we're on the topic on, on the civil law jurisdictions and their relationship, I, I thought it was interesting, and I hadn't thought about it before, that in both... French and German, and basically, I think most continental European languages, the word for what in English is right and law is the same in French and German and Dutch and Swedish, whereas in English, there's a distinction made between right and law, obviously. Do you think that has anything to do with the, the different conception of, of this concept in, in common law versus civil law to the extent that there is a difference? Well, it, it can get in the way of, uh, of a clear understanding of what two people are talking about, um, uh, obviously, it's, it's, it's so striking um, that you can't, you, know, you, 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 you can't say, I don't have a law to do that. But if you translate it literally into other languages, you, you, you can use a word which means both. So, Would it be fair to say that there is a difference, which I think you occasionally hear between common law and civil law? Uh, in its sort of understanding and reception of of whatever we call the doctrine, notion, principle, theory of abuse of rights? Well, uh, I think the, the great thing practicing lawyers want to discover is what what is the um, what is the line between something that creates an enforceable right uh, or not, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, that's the distinction between uh, principles, like it is bad to lie, it's bad to be abusive, it's bad to do things which are disproportional in the context that you're operating. But it, it's really no good as a rule of decision. 
So we have on the one hand, principles and rules of decision. We're not happy, particularly in the, in the English common law where, where we try to look for precedents and things like that. Uh, it's not very satisfactory to say, um, if there has been a fraud in a business context, it's a very complicated fraud. Uh, we don't want to say uh, uh, this party is guilty because it lied and you know, there's a principle that you shouldn't lie. Or there is a principle that you shouldn't lie, but the claimant hasn't proved it. But how do you, um, in any granular way, marshal the reasoning in that case uh, to come up with anything like a rule of decision? How, you can explain any way, as I was saying, when you can call anything an abuse, and therefore you decide on the basis of whether it wasn't an abuse, with proportionality, saying reasonable expectations, a number of things like that. We're not comfortable. Uh, with that. And I think in the common law in particular, because there is a body of precedent and, and, and you know, the law has been there, the common law has been there for a long time, we assume that these kinds of general problems, the general category of problems have come up so many times that you can find something uh, which was a holding which you can use as a rule of decision, which is more precise, which explains why common lawyers uh, are, are very, look very negatively on abuse of right. Uh, because they want to see in a specific context, um, uh, does the law of nuisance tell you something about how much noise you can make on a Saturday night, depending on the sort of neighborhood you live in? Uh, that's where you want to find it. You don't want to say that, uh, uh, oh, that person is abusing the right of home ownership. It's just, it's just too general to be, to be particularly helpful. Um, so I think I think that explains the um, this uh, the, the discomfort that a common lawyer has and, and why this has not been received. Now, when an entire I'd say that it has not gone down very well in common law countries. There are some uh, uh, bold uh, proponents of it, but I don't think they've got very far. Um, and, and once you say that that this is not something which has been received in the common law. Um, how in the world could we consider it to be general principle of law? Is the common law a sort of relatively important aspect of <laughs> comparative law? There's a, there's a, that's an interesting point that you're making because, and, and this may be slightly a different topic, but I, if, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but what I understand from your, from your thesis here is also that you're saying, well, okay, um, theory of abuse of rights, all right, but if it's in a lex specialis, Okay, and why would that be better? It's also for predictability um, and also to give less discretion to arbitrators to render decisions only on policy consideration or have essentially a lot of discretion in, in rendering decision with these vague concepts. But isn't it a, a big problem in investment treaty arbitration today that we have, okay, frankly, like you talked about legitimate expectations, which is considered to be part of the fair and equitable treatment standard. Now, as opposed to what you're saying about the theory of abusive right, FET is part strictly speaking, of a treaty, for example. There's reference specifically to FET. However, there's no definition of what FET is. And then we have these, you know, judges, uh, arbitrators um, defining what it is. What's your view about the issue of predictability and for those concepts? Well, it, it's obviously a problem. Uh, let's take a couple of steps back and say that um, in a treaty-based investor state arbitration, uh, 
a large part and, and sometimes the only part of the applicable law is public international law. This is born of a treaty. So we look at, the, you know, we, we, we start with that idea. Um, so um, do these concepts uh, that we've been talking about, these general principles, are they part of public international law? Um, well, it's definitely the poor cousin of the statute of the International Court of Justice, which defines the sources of law. Uh, and it's a poor cousin because states are extremely jealous of their sovereignty and therefore don't want to accept that international law contains anything that they haven't agreed on individually. So number one is treaties. If I have agreed to a treaty, that's the applicable law to my dispute where I'm involved because I specifically agreed to that. And therefore it is um, a limitation on my sovereignty to which I expressly agreed. So that's number one. Um, and uh, then we go down in the sources of, of applicable law and, and, and we get to general principles of law as applied by civilized, in, in, in civilized nations. And now these days, every nation is civilized by definition. Uh, and, and what exactly is that? For all of the reasons that also pertain to the subject of my book, so, uh, Abuse of Right, uh, this has been something which the International Court of Justice uh, looks at with a gimlet eye. Um, a greater scholar of public international law than I, Alain Pellet, um, who has the distinction of having a, he's a very well-known French professor who has uh, written a, a recurrently republished tome on droit international public, uh, and has the distinction, I think, by far was a frequent advocate before the International Court of Justice, by far. Um, uh, he contributed the, in the uh, uh, Oxford Encyclopedia of the International Court of Justice and the chapter of applicable law. I think it's about 100 pages long. Uh, he addressed this, I, this um, category of general principles of law as a source of law. And what he says, and I'm, I, I introduced him a bit because he should know, um, said uh, it has been referred to in the entire history of the World Court, which includes the Permanent Court of International Justice. It's been referred to four times. And each time the court found a way to dismiss it as being a rule of decision in that case. So if we have that background, and now we introduce these fairly uh, loose considerations into a treaty, um, it, it, it comes against the back, background, which is somewhat challenging. That being the case, there are international, these are international treaties, and there are other multilateral international treaties which specifically uh, um, uh, refer to concepts which are, which are rather vague and leave it to the discretion of the adjudicators to decide them. It's a cautious decision. We know this is going to be problematic, perhaps, but we cannot be more granular, and so we do it. Um, the, um, the Law of the Sea Convention, uh, I think it's Article 300, if I'm not wrong, uh, actually speaks of abuse of right as a rule of decision. Well, that, that's a lex specialis, and as, as we know, uh, there are things about the Law of the Sea which defy making granular, granular rules about how you affect um, an equitable adjustment of uh, an equidistance line in maritime delimitation. So 
we all know that the geomorphological contours of uh, opposing uh, um, uh, coasts uh, are intractable. And you just you just look at the Norwegian coast with the fjords and say, where is the baseline? That's the great case. What in the world do you do with it? So you draw a median line between whoever else is there, the UK, for example, uh, and you feel that you've done it relatively approximate to your, it just there's something weird about it because there's some features which uh, get a disproportionate, uh, a disproportionate impact on where you fix that line. So you're going to adjust it equitably. There's no way out of this. So it said, this will be done uh, and, and you will not do it in a way, uh, you will adjust it equitably. And, and in some cases, there's a, a specific reference to you don't allow abuse of right in, in, in enjoying uh, maritime entitlements. Um, that, that's fine, but you, you've admitted the problem. We cannot be more granular. We tried, we spent years trying to negotiate this treaty and we haven't come up with anything better. And so you know that when you go to court, when you go to law, arbitrators, are, you are going to come up with this, that it's going to be context uh, driven and at some point, there's going to be some jurisprudence and case law, which is of help, and that's fine. So I, I, don't, I don't say this can never happen, but only with wide, eyes wide open. How often do you think, and I think you're a good person to answer this question, given your involvement in arbitrations, how often in an arbitration, be it commercial arbitration governed by a substantive law of a domestic jurisdiction or an international investment arbitration or other kinds of international law disputes, how often do we actually see invocations of the, the notion of abuse of rights, either in party pleadings or, or in decision making or you know, the, the big so what question, if you will. It, is, is this a, a, a true problem or are we primarily engaged in an admittedly interesting academic exercise? Well, I'm not sure uh, of how we should look at this. <laughs> is it a problem? Um, advocates will use this expression. I mean, they want to, they want to make the other sides look bad. Uh, and it's not necessarily a pleading for decide this case because you know there there is abusive conduct. They will say, look at my opponent. You know they're, they're defending a party which has behaved abusively, and you should now start leaning in my favor, whatever the rationale ends up being, and and I will give you some. Or oh dear me, I can't find any, but it's abuse, right? So let's just stay with that and hope that the adjudicators will, will content themselves with, uh, with doing that. And if we don't have the general principle, even though it's not a very mm, precise rule of decision, it doesn't really, it's like lying is bad. Of course, that's a principle, but it doesn't really help. Um, if, if we're not in the realm of, 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 uh, of, of uh, Lex Specialis, uh, this is a problem. And what is very interesting is that and this may be as a problem for arbitration, is that guess who are, what is the group of people who are extremely reluctant to apply these general principles when deciding cases? Uh, if uh, I'll tell you who they are, uh, and perhaps you won't be surprised, judges. Judges don't like it. I mean, there's a court of appeal, and maybe the court of appeal will just have another view of what, what, is abusive or what is lying or something. They really want to have something more precise, which they can decide and feel very confident that I have now applied the law because I found a concrete rule of decision. Um, so to answer your question, 
maybe arbitrators who don't sit as adjudicators quite as often uh, learn that there's no appeal on the merits from their cases, usually in most cases, uh, and uh, feel very honored that so much faith has been put in their judgment and they've uh, listened to the parties and they consider the facts and they feel in their heart that they're very fair-minded. Uh, and now, you know, the right decision seems to be this. Uh, and I feel very comfortable in making this decision. And perhaps I then content myself. Um, why is it that judges don't want to do that? Because uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to prove that you were right. It just shows that you felt you were right. Um, and, 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 and therefore, it's preferable uh, to um, find something which, uh, which, which, which is more reliable. But as you say, uh, you have an investment treaty which refers to fair and equitable treatment. Well, that's a lex specialis, and that's what the arbitrators are expressly entitled to apply. And how do you expect them to do that? There's not a code of equitableness. Mm. You know, equitable def by definition is something which calls uh, on the wisdom and judgment and discernment and just all of those things, uh, good judgment of the agenda. So what about good faith then? I know that you've also distinguished with good faith. I think it'd be interesting to hear more about that. Well, um, good faith is a principle of French law in the performance of contracts. Good faith is a general principle of law according to Bin Cheng, whose chapter on good faith then con concludes with a parenthesis saying the theory of abuse of right as perhaps the reverse. A lot of people say that's the reverse of the coin and, and I, mm -hmm. I just don't get that. It sounds neat, but I, I just don't think I do different things and I don't know what the coin is and I don't know how to flip it and I don't know why it doesn't have five sides. <laughs> no, who knows? Um, but um, uh, uh, what do we say when a contractor uh, contracts to build something um, and everything, you know, the work is defined properly, the price is defined properly, the time of performance is properly and proper and so forth. It turns out that um, under the municipal regulations, only a licensed contractor is allowed to seek the building permit, which includes filling out some forms and actually you have to do it in a particular way. And the uh, contractor says, I didn't, I didn't agree to that. I, I didn't agree to that. I think uh, under uh, the French Civil Code, uh, that would be considered to be something which is obviously attendant on your undertakings because it cannot be performed unless, un, unless you do this thing. So to take that position is in bad faith. I'm very comfortable with that. It's necessarily attendant to the thing that you uh, undertook to, to do. So you're essentially saying that theory of abuse of rights are in fact to take your example, your first example, when you used it, you, it was useless. You, sh you could have used something else. Well, in that case, yes. Uh, so, what would I have done uh, if there? What would I have done if I'd said I'm not going to use this principle, um, and I wasn't aware of the fact that there's a clause in the contract that said that the arbitrators are not strictly bound to apply the law, uh, which my co-arbitrator, for some, I, I can't remember, it's, it's more than 20 years ago. I mean, he, he wasn't comfortable using that particular phrase. Um, uh, as our decision, and, and, and so we, we were very um, uh, happy with the abuse of rights. It's a general principle in Indonesia, he said. Um, so 
what 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 do you do then? You 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 try to find something which is uh, much more meaningful. If somebody wants to get rid of an employee for whatever uh, legally insufficient reason, and knows that this person needs to live in the town where he is now employed. And so, but the employment contract says that the employer has the right to transfer the employee um, to any other place where the company has an office. He decides to, uh, send, to send him from wonderful Lund to Kiruna. <laughs> uh, and uh, this fellow actually needs to be in Lund not only because of its attractions, but uh, he, he is a caretaker for his ailing mother. Okay. Um, what do we call this? Do we have to say abuse of right? This is abuse of the right of transferring this employee? Or do you call it something which is much more granular in the framework of uh, employment law? Can you think, can you imagine what I'm thinking of? Mm. That's a constructive dismissal. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit better, isn't it? Feels better than, um, and, and, and sure enough, in, in uh, um, employment codes, you have that concept. Um, people have thought about it and they just don't leave it, say, well, it's, that'll be an abuse of right. And we all, we, we're mm -hmm. all comfortable having that general principle. No, you will, you will see somebody will say, that's a constructive, mm -hmm. uh, constructive dismissal. And, um, and you feel, judge feels happier doing that and the court of appeal will probably uphold the decision. You have a lot of those examples in the book of more specific norms that can be used instead of the very general vague abuse of rights. Yeah. Yes, and, and that just calls us calls on the adjudicators to penetrate the case a bit deeper and to think about the specificities of the activity that has given rise to the dispute and therefore reaches a decision which is more apposite to all this rather than saying I've, I've been listening to these parties and this is my feeling. Maybe as a uh, sort of a, a final tied up question uh, on, a, on a broader perspective. You've written a book on denial of justice, and now you've written a book on abuse of rights. What is next? We know, of course, that you've retired from three, three crowns. Do you have any other book projects aching? Your next confession. Your next confession. Yeah. Any, <laughs> any other cases from the 90s that you, you feel you should investigate further? <laughs> yes. I'll, uh, no, I'll write a novel. Oh. <laughs> you mean fiction? Yeah. Mm. Well, as much as novels can be fiction. <laughs> I've got a title. <laughs> you care to disclose it or will it be saved for, uh, for publicity purposes to a later stage? Well, you know, who knows how I might change it. The Samson and Delilah Good Times Bar and Restaurant. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Specific. <laughs> this has been a, a delight to talk to you, Jan. Thank you for taking the time, especially on a, on a Friday. Thank you so much for your time. This, this was really great. My pleasure. So we're challenging arbitrators today, or at least talking about other people who have and what you need to do in order to successfully challenge arbitrators. And Dimitri, who helps us with research, has 
I, I'm not sure if I want to say helpfully because it stressed me out more than anything else, but he has created <laughs> an Excel spreadsheet comparing all the relevant arbitration rules and how they regulate arbitrator challenges. Amazing. Like what are the grounds? What is the time limit? Who can comment? Uh, who decides on the, the ultimate challenge? And uh, yeah, we uh, don't have to go into that much detail because as I hinted, we're doing a 101 arbitrator challenge. And I also want to hear you guys' views on these, these issues because this is like a practical thing that most of us have experience with. Right. But in terms of basics, most arbitration rules, and I'm now looking at this Excel comparative table uh, to confirm that it is indeed the case that the standard is, uh, in order to successfully challenge an arbitrator, that is, that there must be justifiable doubts as to the arbitrator's independence and impartiality. This is, by and large, the default standard, almost regardless of the applicable rules, although we get back to a few exceptions later. So mm -hmm. these are two different things, though, independence and impartiality. Uh, independence can be understood objectively and concerns the arbitrator's relationship to parties, co-counsels, and, and co-arbitrators. Whereas impartiality, by contrast, is a bit more subjective and more takes aim at the arbitrator's state of mind, the relationship to the dispute rather than to other people involved. Uh, and impartiality is actually trickier to ascertain and to establish. And I think also came later to the party than the standard of independence. Independence has always been, as long as there's been arbitration, there's been a requirement that arbitrators are independent, but impartiality has sort of come a bit later and some laws and arbitration rules added this as a specific uh, standard on its own very recently, right. honestly. Mm -hmm. Then we also have the justifiable doubts. That is the standard typically, although there are exceptions. And this means of course that justice must not only be done, but also be seen to be done. Oh yeah. Looking at the English speaker. <laughs> but should it be seen in my eyes or should it be seen from the objective point of view? Yes, Joel? very good point, Sadia. The standard <laughs> is not what the parties think uh, in the specific case, nor what the arbitrator thinks is appropriate. The standard is what a reasonable third party thinks which I think we, we talked about when we talked about issue conflicts and also about double-hatting because there are a certain set of views within the arbitration community and then there's another set of views outside of the arbitration community and it doesn't really matter what the arbitrators themselves or people like us think, it is a reasonable third party. So it's, it's, right. a, it's a different standard. Mm. I want to just add one caveat before jumping into sort of the specifics and the, the procedural aspects and, and we will end this segment on a few recent headlines about actual challenges. So it will not only be a dry academic exercise, we'll also have a few good real life examples that I think are very interesting. But we should also say that exit arbitration deviates from virtually every commercial arbitration rule when it comes to challenges. And, and exit, the, st the standard and the framework of the, the, the exit convention, of course, which is the framework, we, uh, that's important to keep in mind. We're talking about a convention from the mid 1960s, whereas the arbitration rules and the commercial institutions have updated their rules regularly. We don't have that, uh, the benefit of that with the exit convention. So it's a different kind of framework. Uh, and about arbitrator challenges, you have to establish under the exit convention, a manifest lack of high moral character, 
recognize competence in the fields of law, commerce, industry, or finance, or ability to exercise independent judgment. So here I want to note first that we have a manifest lack, not a justifiable appearance of a lack of something. And we also have high moral character and ability to exercise independent judgments. So the standard is, at least from the wording, slightly different from any other arbitration, basically. Mm. Drastically different. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and as, you know, as lawyers, if we hear something like a manifest lack of something, we immediately assume that that's a much higher bar than, for example, mm -hmm. a justifiable uh, doubt. So if you, when you do challenge one arbitrator or several arbitrators, and we'll return to the tendency, I would argue, of late to challenge more than one arbitrator at the same time, when you do that, you may send a notice that you challenge an arbitrator within a short time period from his or her appointment or of learning of the circumstances that prompt the challenge. This is typically the same under most rules that either immediately after the appointment or if you learn about something much later, you have to do it quickly after you learn about that fact. And not because you didn't do your due diligence before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It has to be something new, essentially. Right. And then the non-challenging party may agree to the challenge, which is rare, but I guess happens. Uh, or the challenged arbitrator may agree to withdraw, which is less rare and actually happens quite frequently that in the interest of like procedural efficiency and fairness and whatever, even if you as an arbitrator do not necessarily think that the challenge is justified and that you do remain independent and impartial, it might serve the dispute and the parties if you do step down, which happens a lot. Mm. Uh, and then depending on the rules, the challenged arbitrator, the non-challenged arbitrators, uh, and the other party may all provide comments on the challenge. And this happens a lot, mm. but it doesn't get published a lot, which is unfortunate, I think, because this would be a very interesting thing to look at more comprehensively. And then the appointing authority, typically, which might be an institution that administers the case under its own rules, or it might be an appointing authority under the uncentral rules, which we have talked about separately, which is often the, the PCA, but can be anything and anyone, essentially. This appointing authority will resolve the challenge typically pretty quickly, at least within weeks. And that decision is often announced without reason, just in a letter or a simple straight up communication. And is typically also final and binding and you can't really do anything with this. There have been attempts in various domestic courts by parties to go and challenge like arbitral institutions, decisions and challenges, but I don't think it has been pretty uh, successful at all, ever, as far as I know. This, what I just said about the appointing authority issuing the decision is, again, slightly different under the ICSID convention, where, as I also believe we have probably talked about, as a default, it is the non-challenged arbitrators who have to issue a decision on the challenge of their co-arbitrator, which mm -hmm. has created a bunch of issues and everyone dislikes this. Right. Parties dislike this, the arbitrators, both the challenged one and the non-challenged one, they dislike this, ICSA doesn't like this. And we've seen a few tendencies recently for the non-challenged co-arbitrators to say that they do not agree on how to decide the challenge without disclosing who agrees or who disagrees or what the nature of the disagreement is. And then it automatically gets kicked to ICSID if the co-arbitrators do not agree, simply because co-arbitrators are not very comfortable deciding on challenges against a colleague, essentially. Yeah. Is it just, 
Is it just that they don't agree? I, I, I thought they also have just discretion. They can just decide that um, just the, that the president of the of exit will decide it and not them. That's a good question. I don't think so. I think they either have to issue a decision or it's like a hung jury. You know, they they either decide it or they cannot agree. And, and then it's like a mistrial and then someone else has to step in. Hmm. I think. I have to check that point because yeah. I, I thought we looked into <laughs> Please. that. But <laughs> 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 looked at it. <laughs> Please do, because I'm not completely sure. In any event, this is part of the the changes of the exit rules that are currently being drafted. And I think we can assume that this will be changed because this is one of the areas where states also agree that this is not a a good setup. Right. Um, I want to mention one exception to what I just said, and that is the AAA in the United States, which unlike most other institutions does not provide any notice to a proposed uh, or or sitting arbitrator if he or she has been challenged. And also the rules forbid the, the parties from issuing such a notice. So typically when you are challenged as an arbitrator, you are notified of that and also given the opportunity to, to comment on, on the challenge. Under the AAA rules, the, you don't even know that you're being challenged. So you have no opportunity to, to, to comment. And if, if you are successfully challenged, the AAA would just remove you without notice or explanation of the grounds. It's just like, oh. you know, get an email saying, you are no longer on this case. <laughs> <laughs> the ceiling opens and you're just like sucked out the top. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a bit brutal. <laughs> yeah. Here, I know you have a, a favorite scholar, former scholar, uh, Sadia, Remy Gerbay. Remy Gerbay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is going to be in the next season's opening. Right? Oh, put it in the intro, Jan. <laughs> in any event, he wrote a very good book on arbitral institutions and their decision-making powers. And he argued that they actually make decisions way more than we think they do. And this is a good example of that, that when, when arbitrators are challenged and it is an institution making it, it is actually, it's not just administrative. It is actual decision-making. The, the parties argue, the arbitrators argue, and then... Ideally, you also issue a, a, a recent decision as the institution, one that cannot be appealed anywhere. So this is like mm-hmm. an area where you, you can see that institutions have a lot of uh, influence. Um, moving uh, to national law, because sometimes Bef- you have... Before you move to national law, I don't know, and I don't know if you're going to go into this because I don't have your syllabus in front of me, but if you, like, what, what is the use of the arbitrators commenting on their own impartiality and independence? Aside from like, you know, a need to seek clarification on how much, how close your relationship is with the council or, you know, like how, what, what really is the need of that? So, you know, the AAA doesn't allow it, but I, I really don't see the harm in it because I, you know, Joel, in working in an institution, you see what these comments look like. Um, and they're just kind of usually categorical denials of any categoric denials of any any relationship or any issue, or even if I, you know, was married to, you know, opposing counsel, um, I, it won't jeopardize my impartiality and independence whatsoever. So you should just... Yeah, I guess it's as... a due process. It's not necessarily that the comments will be helpful. I think it's mostly giving the arbitrators an opportunity to to, to express themselves before they are just removed right. from, from the case. And I think also there's a corollary here because we, and which I didn't mention, but I think most of our listeners know that when you are approached about appointment and before you are appointed, you should, of course, disclose anything that might raise doubts as to your yeah. independence and partiality. And we have the IBA guidelines on this. And often in challenges, 
there are accusations that the, that the arbitrator in question didn't disclose something that he or she should have disclosed. Right. So I think it's also a chance to give the arbitrator an opportunity to comment on why, why right. didn't you disclose it? I, I thought this, this this is an obvious green list issue, right. or you know it's it's too long ago; it can't affect me anymore. So it's kind of mm. a, a chance to clarify, and at least in those cases, which I think is pretty common, you guys know better. But I have the sense that most challenges are aimed at something that wasn't disclosed but should have been, according to the party. Yeah, the and also the decisions then refer to the comments made by the arbitrator. I've seen that, so they are helpful to. to you know, to that extent, because mm. they are accused of whether or not they they have disclosed why they have not disclosed and what their ties are and et cetera, or right. why did they fall asleep <laughs> during <laughs> a hearing? <laughs> real real life example, real life example. Yeah. Oh, more I was so tired. <laughs> visualizing the arguments. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, let me make an executive call here because we don't have a lot of time and I will ignore the ABLE research on uh, domestic laws um, on a whim and save us some time. <laughs> you're, you're, you're muted in your objection, Sadia. You're literally muted. Yeah. And here you object. I, I was going to say, who cares about domestic law? And then I saw it was <laughs> muted. I was like, maybe it's best for me to keep that muted. <laughs> Well, what's the general interaction? What's the general glean we can take from what happens Mm. in domestic law? Well, I think the point here and the reason that I decided now completely like a dictator to ignore it is that it's very rare that we have international arbitrations governed by domestic law. The parties typically have agreed to arbitration rules. So the default rules in domestic arbitration legislation, they typically kick in in smaller cases, ad hoc cases, uh, or not the types of cases that we talk about, but there are different approaches right. here. So we, you know, one could easily dive into the, the weeds here and, and discuss how domestic jurisdictions differ. But as you know, and maybe our listeners know, I am, have been on this like war path for a long time to try to keep our episodes under one hour and I am failing consistently. But now I will just take a page out of my own book and limit this a little bit. Go for it. I, I was still uh, on the topic of domestic laws though. Let me ask you this uh, a semi-rhetorical question. Can the parties agree to appoint arbitrators who aren't independent and impartial. If both parties agree in the arbitration clause that you know, we, we both want to appoint advocates as arbitrators, people who do not meet the standard, can they do that? Well, it would be, I think it would be against, if, if I'm not talking about exit here, if we're outside of the exit system, subject to the New York Convention, you could possibly set aside for violation of Article 5, I think. On that basis, the arbitrator is in, in, uh, was not independent or, um, or impartial. Is that the case? So it would be a violation. Right. So you, you could set aside. And then who would be the guardian of that in the arbitration then? So then if it's a non-exit case, you, it would, you could potentially set aside the award uh, on that basis. But then there would be the question of you didn't, you know, aren't you a stop from it? Because you're the one who... You know, you didn't raise that objection before, right? Yeah, and you agreed to it. In this well, case, this you agreed to it in the in the arbitration agreement. And we right. know in arbitration, if the parties agree, you're generally fine. They can do almost anything. But that's not really what Article Five yeah. says. It's that there was a you know that there that the arbitral tribunal was not constituted yeah. correctly, mm. and that's where. And so that's why I'm asking, like, who's the guardian of this issue? And I think it would have to be the institution or the other arbitrators. 
um, to, to step in and say that, you know, I, w- I would recuse myself because this tribunal is constituted under like this pretense or that institution would have to step in. But I don't know the power of the institution to do so besides like protecting their rules. Yeah, but that's that's not nothing. Right. <laughs> what if it's a, it's considered a violation of public policy, then notwithstanding the party's agreement, it would be a violation um, mm. because it would be considered improper for, you know, wider public policy issues that yeah. you can't have a tribunal. Yeah, I think this is a very good, uh, good track actually. And I, if, if not public policy, then I think in most jurisdictions, it's a mandatory rule. This independence and impartiality mm. is not something that the parties can derogate from. And if they do derogate mm. from it, that you're right, it probably would be a violation of, of public policy and it would pose problems at the enforcement stage under the New York convention as well. I think you're, you're. But who's going to raise it? Who's going to challenge it? So, so we're talking about a hypothetical. Who's going to say this violates public policy? We're talking about a scenario where both parties appointed uh, an, 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 an not independent or, nor impartial arbitrator. Either or, or, or one arbitrator, but the parties agreed. So no one's going to raise a challenge on public policy because they've both agreed. Until then, Unless you're not happy with the award. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, until until loses, you get the award. You to either enforce it or you want to... But then you're stopped, which is what you're saying. So No. So that's the, that's the definition of a mandatory rule or a public policy rule, that you, you can never opt out of it, basically. It's in the definition. So you, you cannot be stopped from, from relying on public mm. policy or mandatory. So even if you were mm. stupid, you, you, you didn't have the ability to deviate in the first place. Right. But do you think there's an issue, even if it's not challenged or set aside, do you think that there's an issue that needs to be protected before you If a tree falls in the wood and no one hears it fall, (laughs) I think. (laughs) Well, actually, it's a a good point because the institution now, I'm thinking right now because I raised this on Ejimit, the ICC has this new article, Article 12.9, where it says expressly that notwithstanding the party's agreement, the ICC can step in to appoint the... Um, the tribunal, if it considers that the appointment process is is Hmm. unequal. Now, it doesn't refer to independence or impartiality. It refers to the equality of the parties in making appointments. But it's kind of the same. It kind of shows that there's a, you know, there's the power of the institution. The power, yeah. 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 To make appointments. I think so too. And I I think most institutions would react if they saw a clause like this and both parties proceeded to appoint like their own chief legal counsel as arbitrators. I think most institutions would be like, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not. Um, Has that ever happened, Jill, though? Maybe I mean, not. would both how how both parties can be okay with that? You know, they're at war. Like, oh yes, of course, appoint your well this is I'll appoint whoever. We've already spoken to and about John Paulson a lot this episode, but this is essentially his whole <laughs> argument against party-appointed arbitrators. My example is, of course, like a radicalized uh, all the way to to the logical conclusion version of his idea. But he's essentially saying in various different texts that, that party-appointed arbitrators are advocates, and then we should therefore just get rid of them and have yeah. a third party appoint all the arbitrators. And it's, 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 a, it's a more moderate version of the same argument. You're right. We're all agreeing to some extent to some impartiality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or partiality. As much as the system can. Oh my gosh. No wonder people criticize the system. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Everybody's in <laughs> I will now turn to the final leg of this segment, which is the already advertised recent developments. 
And here we rely, as always, as ever, on IA Reporter, and in particular their 2020 year in review piece that we flagged a few episodes ago. Um, because we have a, a number of exit cases where we see challenges to all three tribunal members hearing a case. And they've all been rejected by the chairman of ICSID's administrative council, whose name is David Malpass. Uh, he's a pretty, I think he's a Trump appointee. Uh, so he's like a year or two old mm. in his office. Also the president of the World Bank, obviously that's most of his job. First, we have PNB Banca versus Latvia, where a tribunal determined that an insolvency administrator would be allowed to represent one of the claimants in the proceedings rather than counsel appointed by the claimant's former board. And the former board's counsel, as well as the co-claimants, challenged the entire tribunal following this determination, but it was challenged. And the chairman, uh, uh, sorry, it was rejected. The challenge was rejected. And the chairman... And that's the chairman of its administrative council, obviously, the chairman, David Malpass, rejected the challenge, saying that disqualification proceedings were not the appropriate mechanism to address alleged failures in the tribunal's reasoning. And this is the trend that I wanted to talk to you guys about, that we are seeing more and more challenges against entire tribunals on something that, as an outside observer, it would seem to be targeted primarily at the merits of a tribunal's decision and not so much against their alleged impartiality, lack of impartiality or independence for that matter. And there is, of course, another big case on this, and I don't know how comfortable former Vattenfall counsel Brian Kodik is talking about this, but you, you, you can remember. I wasn't there when, when right, that challenge came moved through, on, so of course, yeah. ha happy to discuss. Good. <laughs> because another challenge was uh, dismissed against the entire tribunal in Vattenfall versus Germany. That's the second Vattenfall case, the one that is still pending and we're all waiting eagerly for. Uh, Germany alleged that the tribunal had engaged in illicit deliberations on another award where uh, Mr. Charles Brower, who, was, who is on the Vattenfall case, was also on this other case. And uh, this allegedly was something that the tribunal had, had illicitly talked about in the Vattenfall case. And it was relevant because uh, it was another ECT case and it concerned similar issues. And Germany challenged, first of all, uh, Mr. Brower on the basis of an issue conflict. And then second of all, the entire tribunal for deliberating on this other award without asking the parties for their opinion on that award. And also for deciding to hold a hearing on quantum by video conference. And here I want to introduce another thing, and I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this, because I don't understand really where this comes from. ICSID here didn't initially rule on this challenge against the entire tribunal. Instead, they, prior to doing so, sought out the PCA for a non-binding opinion on the challenge which as far as I can tell, it's not provided for in any rules or anywhere else. And I should just say that the, the hmm. Secretary General of the PCA then essentially recommended rejecting this challenge against the, the Vattenfall Tribunal, which is what ICSID ultimately did. But I'm interested in where the PCA came from. <laughs> this is an ICSID case. <laughs> and um, You're saying that the, the deliberations happened related to another case that was an ECT yeah. case. Was that also an exit case? Uh, I think so, yeah. Or, or, okay. So the, this was reported at the time by a reporter. So we have some clues here. So, so, so usually the mechanism is that 
is the president of exit right or yeah the vice and, president. yeah and formally that's what happened here as well because the entire tribunal was challenged so there's no co-arbitrator decision you go straight to mm-hmm. exit but before exit issued a decision which they ultimately did they asked the pca for an opinion and the reason according to a reporter at least that they did this uh, in this vattenfall case but it has happened in other cases too in the Vattenfall case, after Germany had initiated the challenge against the entire tribunal, the state also complained to ICSID that an interview with Meg Kinnear in German media suggested that ICSID had prejudged uh. the merits of the pending challenge. And for the record, uh. ICSID rejected this assertion pretty assertively, but they still decided to ask the PCA. And I think there's a connection here that Germany, represented uh, by, by Sabine Konrad, had argued that ICSID will not be able to do this independently. So we, and then ICSID sort of met them halfway by asking the PCA. But what is interesting, and maybe I'm the only one who thinks this is interesting, but this has happened many other times and it hasn't always been the PCA that ICSID has turned to. In ConocoPhillips versus Venezuela, uh, a challenge was actually sent from ICSID to Nicholas Phillips, a former president of the Supreme Court of the UK, sorry, of England and Wales. And he issued a recommendation that ICSID then incorporated into a decision. And here, I don't know anything about the, the factual background, but this was this mm. summer in 2020. It's part of the I Reporter's Year in Review. And there are several other ICSID cases where a, a third party has been consulted by ICSID in, in issuing a non-binding decision on the challenge application thoughts strange yeah that is very interesting especially since you say that you i mean what's even if you argue that exit has prejudged the matter if you want to be criticized exit for their decision how what's your recourse then i guess that's the problem there is no recourse really my, my point here is that as far as we know, and there might very well be things that we don't know or that i don't know but there don't doesn't seem to be any criteria for how and mm. when ICSID sort of outsources to a third party to be involved in the challenge proceeding. And it, I don't think it's something that has been talked about a lot in the community. I just find it interesting, especially because we don't really know who, who these really people are. It's one thing, the PCA, I can see that you could make a case because it's like the other international organization administering cases, but uh, right. a former president of this. But an yeah. individual, yeah. And then what is the legal force of this non-binding opinion? That so far exit has agreed with every time. I don't really know. I just want to, you know, put the question mark here and add this tendency to the tendency to challenge the entire tribunal, which we've also seen in another Latvia case and in several cases involving Spain. I think Spain has repeatedly challenged the entire tribunal in exit cases now. So those were my two uh, red flags or flags, at least from recent challenge mm-hmm. practice. Yeah, we're seeing, I mean, we're seeing challenge practice arise much more than we did 10 years ago. And I think it's uh, an interesting kind of uh, procedural tactic that some parties are employing and kind of broadly sweeping the challenge to all arbitrators is something that we've seen more and more mm. um, and more frequently in, in these in these past few years. So I, th- I think it's an interesting development, but often and most often failing. So yeah, it's never successful, actually, as far as I know but also, of course, delaying no. the cases. I think under the exit system, as a default, the whole procedure is, is put on a, on a pause. 
during a challenge. Well, that's yeah. that's that's actually one of the things I I I think that was going to be addressed in the new rules as well. This 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 issue is that once a party challenges um, an arbitrator, then the procedure stops. You know, um, and mm -hmm. and that's that. Like you said, Brian, it's a very powerful guerrilla tactic. If you don't want the proceeding to mm. move forward, you just block it. And who's going to pay for all of that? You know, so uh, it, it creates a huge. Especially coming if it comes from a respondent, I would say it creates a huge burden on claimant. Yeah, because you see in other rules the ability to continue with the arbitration, or even if you even if they're challenged so late in the arbitration, you don't even need to necessarily rehear a lot of the you know a lot of the cases. It'll be up to the determination of the tribunal, like how much they'll have to go back. So I think Ixid should really address that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's ironic that it happens a lot in Ixid, given what we just said initially about Ixid having a much higher bar for a mm. successful challenge. The the chance of having an entire tribunal removed under the manifest standard of, of the Ixid Convention is so small, but it also mm. disrupts yeah. the proceeding. I don't know. I don't. I don't know enough about these individual cases, and everything is always much more complicated than it seems. But I don't really know how I feel about challenging the entire tribunal just as a general procedural idea it doesn't look good i think unless you have a very compelling case right right and generally speaking joel maybe you don't have the answer to this but um what's the percentage of success of challenges not of the entire tribunal but just generally speaking i don't know actually that's a good question mm. and probably something i should have looked into well it is difficult because arbitrators tend to recuse themselves anyway that's so a very good point that a successful that's challenge. a very good point actually yes there are enormous there's a lot of cases like this where you challenge and then the arbitrator is like no 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 i'm not in you know i'm not not independent and not you know just because i've been challenged i'm gonna I'm going to resign now. Exactly. I, when I was working for a reporter, and this can be the final note to end on, I, I, I was chasing, I can't remember what happened and what was actually ultimately reported, but Stefan Schill recused himself after having been challenged. And I think it's a matter of public record that he published a letter uh, basically saying, I will step down, but then very thoughtfully and carefully also explaining why he didn't agree on the merits of the challenge. But, you know, he started off by saying, I, I'm not going to drag this on. I, I recognize that I'm becoming a liability. I'm going to step down. However, on the merits mm -hmm. of the challenge, this is ludicrous for the following reasons. I don't know if that mm -hmm. letter was ever published or if it was only reported, but I think that's uh, a very interesting approach and probably the way it sometimes happens as well, if you have a mm -hmm. good approach. I yeah, think. I agree. All right. I think that's it for challenges. And we can move on to having a happy, fun time. Great. Thanks, Joel. <laughs> time to crack a beer. It is happy fun time. We are going to be talking about paralegals, a topic that was brought to our attention and suggested so graciously by our editor, Jan Kunster. Um, so we will attack this uh, segment. I want to first get definitions right, though, which is often the lawyerly start. In the U.S., <laughs> paralegal is not what it is. In the yeah, exactly. Start I was going to say. Definitions. <laughs> On page 36 of the dictionary, uh, Oxford English Dictionary. What is a paralegal? Um, they, what is a paralegal? Well, in the U.S., a paralegal is a trade. It's something that you study for. My mom was a paralegal. She went to a paralegal training school, and it's basically someone who does the legal research, but also, you know, gets binders together and, you know, it gets all your tabs organized and everything, but it is a trade 
and it's not a stepping stone to become an associate because mm-hmm. a lot of paralegals and this is the difference unless yes. you're Meghan Markle in suits she started as a paralegal <laughs> then she went to law school and then you're a criminal oh, no. lawyer and <laughs> oh my god well a lot of paralegals do that so a lot of paralegals will kind of work as a paralegal through law school well, you know, to earn some money to pay for law school in the U.S. because it's impossible. And then and t- once they qualify as a lawyer, then they'll become an associate, usually at the firm that they've been paralegally mm-hmm. at. But here in Europe, it's a bit different. And it, I, I would say in the U.K., it's and I guess it happens in France. But, you know, in Sweden, you did not have your paralegal was completely separate as well. So a paralegal at Mannheimer, for example, they called it a paralegal, but it was someone who helped with case research, but also our paralegal was very tech savvy. So she was creating other PowerPoints for opening statements. And that in the US would not fall under the purview of a paralegal. Mm. In the UK, a paralegal is someone who um, is basically an associate, um, but just doesn't have the um, responsibilities as a full associate, but they can take anything on from creating the exhibit list up to drafting themselves, depending on what, how capable the associate is and how much they are actually needed in the team. So I feel that we should focus on the UK version of the paralegal for the purposes of this discussion. Does that make sense to you guys? Yes. And I think that's also the, yeah. the horizon that, that Jan comes from because he's worked on that office of paralegal and, and had some thoughts on doing it. And that's right. been in the UK context, which I think is also the most helpful one to talk about. But I, as is often the case with these like very more practical or relevant issues, I will have to partly sit this one out because I haven't worked at a law firm, which is always (laughs) a liability for me. Well, you could just do your very good, like quizzical, like, oh, does that really happen? (laughs) Tell me what Um, happens in practice, please. Well, Sadia, do you guys have paralegals? Yes, at, yes, yes. So firm? we have some, but in the London office. And that's a very good point is that you mentioned mm. um, in the Paris office, we had one as well, but because it was he was recruited by um, uh, one of our uh, British partners because the French ones, it's, mm. it's, not, it's not a French thing at all to have a paralegal, I would say. Um, so a lot of our right. secretaries actually take on that role of paralegals at some point. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, our, our PAs, they're, they're, they're amazing. They just uh, get, you know, do all those things. But yeah, but it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's a job in, in itself to be a paralegal. You absolutely need one. And so when you have big cases with a lot of documents, of course you need, you need paralegals. But we've had a lot of experiences, like you mentioned, where we had paralegals um, that then went off to qualify as um, as lawyers. Mm. So it was their first experience as um, in the legal in the legal field. Actually, my boss's first experience was as a paralegal. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I think it's a great experience because you start as an associate on your first day and they tell you to make an exhibit list or they tell you to draft the sec and you have no idea what the exhibit list is supposed to look like. You have no idea about the forms of documents. So it is an invaluable stepping stone, I think, in the UK. But then you also have traineeships in the UK. So if you qualify as a UK lawyer, you have to spend two years working or, you know, working at a firm. So you're going to get that experience and, you know, on its own. But a lot of these paralegals in the UK are qualified lawyers in other jurisdictions that have come here and have trouble finding a job. So they have to take on these roles, even though they're fully qualified lawyers. So you end up getting a very experienced and very capable paralegal, which is why it becomes a bit of an amorphous role, because they can really take on more responsibility than 
then you or in the UK think, you actually have some you know there's some flexibility as to when you could be a paralegal before you actually do a training contract so it gives you it, right. it helps you actually getting a training contract if I would say it's good it's oh, good right. for your mm-hmm. you know your application um, and uh, it also gives you insight into the job invaluable insight because you're when you're a trainee you're not really given everything but when you're paralegal you know exactly what's going on in the file from a to z it's really and and it enables you also to make up your mind as to okay do i really want to do this do i really want to get into this Mm -hmm. two years of training contract and whatever 40 50 years of career in the legal industry (laughs) Uh, so i think it's a good time also to to assess whether you want to do this or not uh to be a paralegal absolutely So, Sadia, what makes a good paralegal, in your opinion? Oh, my gosh. The- what are, like, the characteristics? Is, is it just the same as being a good associate, just being organized and diligent and attention to detail? Mm. Or do you think there's, like, something mm. else? I mean, I was going to say the organized attention to detail, proactive. <laughs> I think proactive is a big one. Proactive is, is Yeah, big. because you mm. can't wait for the associates to tell you, can you please make a folder with the exhibits or stuff like that, even though associates should tell you that. Um, but I think even... Yeah before you're filing much months before you should organize everything and know exactly where things are. And yeah, I mean, we would actually, when I was in New York, we would travel with our paralegals for hearings. They would come with us. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're oh, yeah. indispensable, Definitely. indispensable in knowing where each talk is. And um, so, yeah, I can't think of. Well, I think this is, that's an interesting point because we, we traveled as well um, with a paralegal, not only just to have that support help, but, but also typically well, this was in Sweden, but they had some sort of competence in the systems. So like any of the the software that you had, they were the most like capable in those, in those like managing those software. So whether it be PowerPoint or um, doc, man- doc management tools, whatever you had, they would be the ones that would be like perf- the most proficient in that. So you could just kind of like pawn it off to them and they would handle it like the most the most efficiently um but that that is that would be the only other characteristic that i would add to your list which is someone that is extremely capable in handling <laughs> a large amount of documents with the software that you yeah find. i think also another one is being able to work with people yelling at you <laughs> and being rude at you <laughs> <laughs> Keep your head down. There's a lot of down. a lot of people in the firm, uh, not my firm, thankfully, but I've you know I've heard that, and I'm sure it's true in other firms. They don't realize that you know paralegals are part of the team. I mean, whoever it is in your team, you should treat them with respect, you know. And some people just have this mm. thing where they're like, oh, you, they're not associates or they're not part of the legal team or whatever. They're not lawyers. Um, and this so they is, just this is the point where I ask, is this really what's going on in practice? <laughs> Does that really? Well, this is it because you involve your paralegal usually at a time of crisis. Yes. It's not like, okay, let's get yeah. our team together. It's like, oh, it's like, oh no, here comes a massive doc <laughs> production. Get the paralegal in here. The paralegal comes in like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, being like, what do you want me to do? And then it's like garbage dump landfill on yes, their head. That's exactly like, it. Deal with yes. that. And then that's obviously not right. <laughs> so what is the management style that you two would subscribe to or recommend as, as senior people within law firms? When I've, when I've been interviewed about my management style, 
with junior associates as well. It's it's all about over-inclusion and unfortunately it comes with a cost. So you have to manage the cost, but it's all about over-inclusion and getting people in as early as possible. I think if you, and I was, I functioned poorly as a junior associate in circumstances where I was given a remote, like, you know, a, a separate task that I had no idea the context of the case. I had no idea where it was going to fit in. And I had no idea the scope of it at the beginning. Um, and I think if you tell a pair, if you bring a paralegal on, be like, you will be on this case. I want you familiar with everything that's going on. I, you may not work every single stage of that case, but we would just want you to have, you know, familiarity with the file, et cetera. And they're cheaper. So, you know, they're, you know, they charge a fraction of the price. So if you get it, you know, you get a good one, you rely on them from the beginning. I think they really rise. Yeah, I agree. You need to include them in everything. I mean, we, when we have our calls or daily or weekly calls, they're always connected. So they know what's going on, even if we're not going to ask them, you know, something specific on the substantive brief that we're writing, they need to know what's going on. um, I think. And it's also Mm -hmm. very interesting for them. So what you said, Brian, I think is key. People forget, you know, when they give instruction, even to a trainee, the same thing. You can't just, give them the instruction without giving them background on the case. It's just the work product at the end is, is not as good as if you would give no, them exactly. the bigger picture, but it takes a lot of time. It does. I mean, to kind of chat with everyone and give them huge background and everything and have them included, but it's, it's really important. I agree. Well, and that goes to your point on being proactive. I think if a paralegal has no idea about the case and is just asked to make an exhibit list, there's no way they're going to say, wait a second, this document's missing, or I've seen this document before, we haven't attached it. Is this what you do? We want to do that. That that makes an amazing paralegal, mm-hmm. but they would never know that if they hadn't you know, been fully kept up on the case. So yes, I think that's, it's difficult because mm-hmm. it is expensive and it's a lot of management, but um you, you, as we as we've talked about in every segment, like we had with filing a couple of episodes ago, that you just need to be organized. Yeah, fortunately, <laughs> Jewel has this <laughs> smile on his face. What are you gonna say? No, I was just thinking. I was listening to you guys talking about filings, and as I did, I would like I saw that filings came in in the case at like five thirty <gasps> a.m. local oh, time. No. Was uploaded something I was working. I was like, like, oh, I'm so happy I'm not on the <laughs> filing side, but especially you file at five in the morning and then you know you're completely dead so you go to sleep and then at eight in the morning you get this email from an arbitrator saying i didn't receive or i can't open the attachment uh, yeah. and then it's For like everyone's like ah! <laughs> yeah. and guess who gets called first the paralegals because yes. they're probably the ones they're right you're like please assist please please <laughs> yeah Oh, I, I had a huge exit filing at my previous firm and it was basically like the team of lawyers around the paralegal being like, cut out that footnote, file that, attach that. And she was just like, ah, like freaking out. It was, um, yeah, you have to, you have to be strong. You have to be able to say no, no, like no one's touching mm. the document now. If you have edits, you send them to me through a separate doc or you, you know, because otherwise it can't work. It really, it's too Definitely. difficult. Yeah. But yeah, but they're essential. The unsung heroes. Yes, exactly. They're essential. They're really essential. And I can't believe Absolutely. there are teams functioning without paralegals. I'm sure Jan is a, a very good paralegal, given, <laughs> yes. given how, how much of an unsung hero he is in the production of this podcast. He's basically the person running this behind the stage without any credit as well. Oh, perfect. He knows all of the, you know, the software that we need. He's always proactive. <laughs> exactly. He's always yes. available. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Jan, we love you. I know. <laughs> Good job. 
Well, thank you guys for another good episode. Follow us at the ARP station or write to us at the arbitration station at gmail.com. We have a backlog of emails we have to respond to, by the way. Sorry to those of you who, who have We're not very popular. <laughs> We're very popular. <laughs> <laughs> we have other OG mid threads. No, that's not why. <laughs> Ah, for the record, I had to seek authorization from Joel and Brian if I could accept my Ojima job. No, that's not true. Just to make sure I would continue the podcast. Yes. yes. <laughs> we have very detailed confidentiality agreements and non-compete clauses. That <laughs> exactly. Go through. Thank you so much, guys. Bye. Okay, bye, guys. Bye. bye. Thank you. Bye.